You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch Podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. It's hard not to think of evolution as a race to a goal, a slow race, but nonetheless, relentless improvement to get to some definite finish line. Think of those cartoons of the slow ascent out of the murky primordial pool. You have the first animals to flop their fins on land and haul their bodies along the sand. Through the lumbering, knuckle-dragging, bipedal primates. Two homo sapiens standing proud and marching upright to their desk jobs. Morning, Jim. Morning, Steve. Copier's down again. Yes, the shining culmination of millions of years of evolutionary refinement. Homo sapiens, the pinnacle of creation. Oh, and the toner's low, too. And presumably, the pinnacle of intellectual achievement. The brainy buck stops at homo sapiens, right? It depends on what we mean by intelligence, because believe it or not, the definition is murky. Rather, the definition of intelligence has not been adequately elucidated due to the imprecise metrics used to determine its presence. Is intelligence defined by the ability to communicate? When I do count the clock that tells time and see the brave day sunk in hideous night, when I behold the... Humans do that, of course, but so do birds. Well, maybe it's the ability to solve complex problems or use tools. Well, you've probably seen the video of the octopus opening a jar, but have you seen the one in which it collects coconut shells, tucks them under its body for defense against future predators? Maybe intelligence is the ability to recognize oneself in a mirror. Well, elephants can do that. And remember, chimps and bonobos do their own versions of all these things. So maybe humans haven't cornered the market on intelligence. I'm Molly Bentley. I'm Seth Shostak. This is Big Picture Science, where we step back to get the big picture view on science and where it's headed. And in this hour, where our definition of intelligence is taking us, there are some surprising discoveries that have profound implications for how we understand the minds of other living organisms. The poster porpoise for intelligence, of course, is the dolphin. In the usual list of the most intelligent animal species on the planet, well, this lovable aquatic mammal ranks near the top for nearly everyone. I make the claim that it is very difficult to both define intelligent and figure out whether or not dolphins really are intelligent compared to other species. 
That's right. One of those surprising discoveries about intelligence we mentioned is that dolphins may not be as exceptionally smart as we thought. We'll hear more from researcher Justin Gregg on that. But the question of just how bright dolphins really are highlights a fundamental problem. How do we measure intelligence anyway? For humans, there are plenty of tests, mostly involving questions. Okay, let's see. The next one, yellow is to banana as blank is to apple. I'll come back to that one. But when it comes to the intelligence of other animals, one of the things we look for is their EQ, their encephalization quotient. Basically, that's the ratio of brain weight to body weight. You know, what fraction of your body is brain? The species with the highest encephalization quotient, or EQ, is, well, us, Homo sapiens. In second place are apes. And number three are whales and these guys. Dolphins have big brains and high EQ, which is one of the reasons why Lawrence Doyle, a senior scientist at the SETI Institute, tried to see if all those squeals and squeaks they're making are a kind of language, which would be a confirmation of real mental ability. One of the reasons dolphins are remarkable. Well, they have a very complex social structure. Uh, They uh, work together in catching fish. They have a complex communication system, which we'll talk about later, And they also use tools. For example, they put sponges on their noses uh, when they go to dig for fish, which they have found by echolocation. So they actually find the fish under the sand, and then if the coral or sand is rough, they use a sponge on their nose and then bury into the sand to get the fish. Now, what's an example of a complex signal that a human can give a dolphin and that a dolphin understands? Well, Lou Herman and his colleagues in Hawaii uh, actually trained dolphins to recognize both hand signals and whistles that could uh, differentiate between, for example, a ball and a hoop as a direct or indirect object. Go put the ball in the hoop or go get the hoop and put it over the ball were relationships that the dolphins in Hawaii could understand. And, and how rare is that in the animal world? Well, I think understanding direct and indirect objects may be fairly rare. Um, I'm not sure about very wild animals, for example, humpback whales, but um, fish and so on, we're not sure at all that they could understand this direct and indirect object in their uh, communication systems. So I'd say it was pretty rare. Now, I want to get to uh, dolphin language between dolphins, <laughs> what they might say to each other, but, but you also mentioned that dolphins have complex societies. What's an example of complexity in a dolphin pod? Well, they have a different hierarchical structure uh, that there are certain leaders and certain followers and everyone knows their place. Of course, this isn't unique to dolphins. Wolves do this as well, but it's in order so they can hunt together and synchronize their movements. Can you say a little bit more about that and and why that confers exceptional intelligence? Because all animals are going to have some adaptive ability. They're going to respond to stimuli, but it's not necessarily an example of intelligence. I mean, there are a lot of insects that buzz around together, but I don't know if we would say that, for example, uh, mosquitoes are intelligent. Well, yeah, mosquitoes uh, follow a chemical trail once other mosquitoes kind of start to bite, as do bees, for that example. But um, dolphins, for example, adapt to the circumstances. And we would say that they can deal with different conditions uh, on the spur of the moment, and that does tend to 
express intelligence, that you're adaptable, not just hardwired to behave in a certain way. You were describing how, how dolphins respond to humans, but dolphins also communicate with each other, of course. And what kind of things do dolphins say to each other, and is it indeed language? Well, uh, one thing, we know there's a thunk sound, and that means when the mother makes that sound that the baby is supposed to come to her side, that's danger. But a lot of the other vocalizations dolphins make are not directly correlated with their actions. And so, in some sense, a language is developed so you can talk about things that aren't present. And uh, we suspect that dolphins have a symbolic kind of language, although this is still being investigated. But uh, we, what we can do is quantify using uh, special mathematics called information theory the complexity of their language. That is, how many rules do they have in their language that are similar to what uh, humans would call syntax or grammatical rules. This is something similar to, for example, if you have a copy machine that's low on toner and you get back to your desk and you want to recover missing letters and words, well, you can do that because you know spelling and grammar rules. Well, a language uh, that the dolphins have, their communication system, we can see signals that depend on the occurrence of other signals. And so that we would call a simple kind of syntax. And in that regard, I think it should be considered that dolphins have a complex communication language because of this definition. So what you're saying is when you talk about recovering words, an example might be if I said to you, Lawrence, there was a bad snowstorm and your car is stuck in the snow. If I just said snowstorm, car, stuck, you would understand what I was talking about. Yes, and that's exactly what dolphins uh, have as well as humpback whales and we suspect other species. But Lawrence, at what point does the parallel between human language and dolphin language uh, break down? Would you say that dolphins, the language of dolphins, is as complex as human languages? Well, uh, we are testing it, and we don't have enough information about dolphin language and enough data to be able to tell how complex it really is. We know that in human language, the syntax or the relationship between words goes to about nine words in length. That is, if you got that uh, copier that low toner copier paper back to your desk and you were missing more than nine words, you might as well pick any word from the dictionary because there's no longer a relationship. But if you're only missing a few words, you can fill them in because there are rules that are affecting those words. Well, with dolphin communication system, we know that so far dolphins have about three or four whistle uh, structure at least. In other words, if they uh, don't understand a word, they can uh, fill it in by knowing the rules of their communication system. And so for you, you have no hesitation using the word intelligence with dolphins. Yes, I have no uh, hesitation about that. Dolphins may have a different kind of intelligence. We have to de-anthropomorphize our concepts of intelligence so I would describe them as intelligent, but in a non-human way. Lawrence Doyle, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thanks a lot. That was a lot of fun. Lawrence Doyle is a senior scientist at the SETI Institute. Okay, so by the measure of language and complex social behavior, dolphins are intelligent, according to him. But wait, back to the researcher we heard earlier. 
My name is Justin Gregg. I'm a research associate with the Dolphin Communication Project, and I study how dolphins communicate with each other and what the meaning of those communication signals might be. Because it's not so clear. Sure, dolphins whistle at each other, but how complex are those signals, and do they really make these cetaceans any smarter than your average animal? That's really the heart of the problem. When we see an animal do something that looks a lot like what humans do, is that a form of intelligence or is that just being like a human? For example, dogs aren't very good at passing the mirror self-recognition test, but they'd be a lot better at a test involving recognizing the smell of each other's urine, for example, which is something dolphins wouldn't do. So how do we rank dolphins compared to dogs on a test that doesn't apply to dogs? Well, I think part of the reason that we think they're smart is, to begin with, they're appealing, of course. They, they always seem to be smiling, although they, they never lose that smile, so I sort of wonder. Uh, but they also have very big brains. They have what's called a high encephalization quotient. Their brains are big with respect to their body sizes. Is that part of the story here, that, you know, if they're big brain, they must have a reason for having a big brain? Yeah, for over half a century, people have realized that dolphins have these enormous brains, and relative to their body size, they have brains that are almost as big as the human brain. So, of course, it was long thought that a huge brain must result in complex behavior. In a lot of ways, that is true. But there are lots of examples from the animal kingdom of animals with small brains behaving in just as complicated ways uh, as dolphins. So, in general, scientists don't really have a good grasp on what having a big brain is all about. Well, what about the fact that they're claimed to have a language by, you know, analysis of the sounds they make? It, it seems to follow the same sorts of, if you will, mathematical relationships, the same patterns as you find for, you know, other species that have language like humans, for example. I mean, that sounds pretty clever to me. Yeah, humans have long thought that dolphins might have a language, so something in their communication systems that was just like human language that allowed them to talk about complex abstract subjects. And using things like information theory, you can look at dolphin communication to see how complex or organized it might be. And some of the clues we have are saying, hmm, yeah, it might be more complex or more structured than other sorts of communication. But in general, scientists don't think that those complex signals are semantically or meaningfully rich, like we see in human language. So, I mean, they have, what, a more sophisticated series of barks, but, but they actually can't convey abstract thought or, or things like, you know, I really like you or something like that? Yeah, that's exactly it. If you think about bird song, it's very complex. It's organized very systematically using something we might even call syntax. But the message in bird song is usually quite simplistic. It says things like, I'm over here, or this is my territory. So they use all this complexity for very simple meanings. And dolphins probably have more complex meaning in what they're saying, but not that much more, and certainly nothing like we find in human language. But what about uh, the argument of Lawrence Doyle, who will say, look, you know, these guys have a lot of redundancy in those sounds they're making, and it, it follows the same mathematical law as any language would. And some of that redundancy extends up to, you know, many symbols long. In other words, these are complex sounds they're making. It, it doesn't seem to be something that's only used to communicate very simple messages. Yeah, using the sort of information theory that Lawrence Doyle has used, you have found that Dolphin communication behaves in similar ways to human language in terms of producing that kind of redundancy. So in that sense, it's similar to the way human language is structured. That's what you'd expect. But that itself doesn't in any way prove that there are, in fact, rich uh, signals in there. It might be very basic. Things like, hey, it's me. I'm over here. I'm over here. 
Well, maybe you can give us some examples of uh, animals that we generally don't think of as being terribly smart that exhibit some of the same uh, characteristics that can do some of the things that the dolphins can do. Well, if you think of the family dog, for example, nobody has ever thought of the dog as particularly all that smart. You know, they're a lot of fun to be around. But now that we've seen more uh, recent experiments into dog cognition, we realize how intelligent they really are. They can follow uh, human eye direction and the uh, human point to find objects in the distance. That's something that you see in dolphins, but not a lot of other species. Even the chimpanzees have a hard time with that. And in fact, the dog, uh, Chaser the Border Collie, knows over 1,000 symbols, which sort of are like words that stand in for objects. And that is a magnitude more than you find in chimpanzees or dolphins. And in fact, they're the best at learning symbols of any species. My goodness. Well, <laughs> okay, dogs, but you've also said that the chickens are cleverer than we thought. It's true. Chickens certainly get a, a bad rap. I mean, that's partly because we, we eat them, so we're not that curious to find out how smart they might be. Uh, but there are a couple things that chickens do that are quite intelligent. Their social grouping is quite intelligent, and also they have these referential vocalizations. So they can make a vocalization that stands in for uh, the concept of different kinds of food or enemies as well. So those things, when you look at all the things that animals do, are generally accepted as being pretty smart. Well, finally then, Justin, I would guess that your claim here that dolphins might not really be quite as smart as we thought. It's not made you very popular among some people because it seems that everybody loves dolphins. What's the reaction been? Um, I've had good reaction from a lot of colleagues who, who are into animal cognition and love studying these complex issues. But if you go up to the man on the street and you say, hey, you should think a little harder about the nature of dolphin intelligence. It's not that straightforward. You do, in fact, meet a lot of resistance. So I've I had a lot of people who have been quite unhappy with me even addressing the concept of the difficulty of studying dolphin intelligence. But I think people who actually read what I'm saying and read the book will understand that I'm not arguing that they're dumb. I'm just arguing that a lot of other species are more intelligent than we realize, and this whole concept of intelligence is almost impossible to study. Justin Gregg, thanks so much for talking with us. It was a real pleasure. Justin Gregg is a research associate with the Dolphin Communication Project and the author of Are Dolphins Really Smart? Next, journalist Michael Pollan with a surprising and spooky intelligence of plants. You'll never look at your hydrangea the same way again. It's You Think You're So Smart on Big Picture Science. So we've heard some challenges to the conventional ideas of intelligence, but maybe the problem is we have the wrong metrics. To have an encephalization quotient, high or low, you need a brain. But does brainless necessarily mean clueless? Journalist Michael Pollan has written a lot about plants. As one of the most forward-thinking writers about food, he's helped shape national consciousness about what foods we should eat, what foods we do eat, and the consequences of our decision. He's become well-known for his pithy advice on what to put on your fork. Eat real food, not too much, mostly plants. The virtues of a plant-based diet thread through his popular books, such as The Omnivore's Dilemma and Food Rules. But before he wrote about how to cook plants, Michael Pollan spent a lot of time thinking about the evolution of plants, 
for example, writing about the reciprocal relationship between them and people in The Botany of Desire. And so he's returned to his roots, you could say, with a remarkable essay about flora that may be as thought-provoking as his revelations about how our food choices shape the health of us and the planet. The Intelligent Plant appeared in the New Yorker's December 23, 2013 issue, where such words as plant, sentience, and neurobotany all cohabitate. And where the whole idea of plant smarts is given a smart update from the ideas presented in the popular 1970s book and film, The Secret Life of Plants, which claim that plants could think. Michael, from what you've written, plants seem to really have a secret life, although maybe not the one that was described in the film and the book of that same name. Yeah. Well, you know, The Secret Life of Plants was one of the first attempts to explore that hidden reality of plants, and it was mostly bogus, as it turned out. But it turns out also that plants are remarkably more sophisticated in their understanding of their environment, their ability to process information, their ability to respond to the environment than we ever knew. And there is a group of scientists now prepared to say that they are intelligent, and they make some pretty compelling arguments. Well, I think we should explore that a little bit further, but but I'd just like to hearken back to the 1970s. I remember it well when The Secret Life of Plants hit the bookshelves. It included uh, the description of some experiments that a man by the name of Cleve Baxter did. He hooked up some plants to a galvanometer. Which yeah, was, a lie detector, basically, yeah. Yeah. Well, what did he observe? Well, he was an interesting character. Baxter worked for the CIA, and he was a, a really prominent lie detector analyst. And he, on a hunch one day, hooked up a Dracaena, a common houseplant, in his office to the lie detector and started getting responses to things he had simply imagined. Uh, he found that if he could conjure in his mind an image of a plant burning up, that plant would react, showing the kind of stressful reactions that a, a human liar would exhibit. And he went on to hook up all sorts of plants, and he determined that they could essentially read his minds, that they had telekinetic powers, and that even people some distance away, when they were injured, say, or were thinking injurious thoughts of the plants, would respond. He also found that they could, or he claimed, that they could pick out a murderer of a plant in a lineup. He got a bunch of volunteers, and he had one of them. There were two plants in pots in a room, and he had somebody come in and stomp one of the plants to death. And then he brought in a lineup of suspects. And when the guilty one came in, the surviving plant uh, showed a very stressful reaction in his presence, thereby picking out the guilty plant murderer. So this book was an enormous hit in 1973 when it was published. But when other scientists tried to replicate some of Baxter's findings, they couldn't do it. So over time, it's been largely discredited, even though it lingers on in the popular culture. I mean, one of the things in the book that was a big deal was the finding that plants really like music, and they like classical music in particular, and Mozart in particular, and they like to be talked to. And there are still millions of people in America, I'm sure, and elsewhere, who talk to their plants and play Mozart for them uh, for no good scientific reason. Well, I've uh, got to say, when I was a graduate student, we had uh, learned of this, and we actually set up a recorder with a timer, and every morning at 7.30, it would play a little bit of music to the plants out on the patio. <laughs> oh, good morning, plants. Tell them a few jokes. I've got to tell you, the plants all died. I mean, it, sounds, <laughs> it sounds like the, the, the plants not only have fear, 
but they have uh, telepathy. I mean, they would be great to take to Las Vegas. <laughs> now, now, this work by Baxter, I mean, it was published. It was published in the Journal of Parapsychology, which I suppose should give everyone some pause. Yeah, what exactly does peer review look like in the Journal of Parapsychology? I must say, I don't know. But, but the book has had long-lasting effects. I mean, as you say, it's been somewhat discredited. But, I mean, has it affected research in any other substantive way? Well, yes. I talked to a lot of legitimate plant scientists, and many of them said that the secret life of plants had actually hurt their field and that any kind of research that edged anywhere near to these concerns about plant sensation, communication, responsiveness to humans was uh, very hard to fund and very quickly discredited. And so there were scientists I talked to that basically thought that that book had been so damaging to the field and really slowed research into plants. And on the other side, as soon as anyone comes forward with a new idea, such as the so-called plant neurobiologists that are the center of this piece, uh, they are immediately likened to the secret life of plants. And that book is used to discredit them. So it has had an inhibiting effect on the field, I think, which is really a shame because there was clearly lots more to be discovered. What's emerged recently in the plant research are a whole series of unusual phenomena with how plants perceive and react to their world. I, I must say, some of this stuff sounds really uncanny. For example, plant roots. Okay, they're growing into the ground. You figure they're probably sensitive to moisture in the ground. But, but what happens when they meet an immovable object, a buried rock or something like that? Well, they change direction. And what's really incredible is they change direction before they quite hit it. So they have a way of sensing that there is some obstacle that we don't quite understand because they will turn before they get there. And they'll do the same if they hit a patch of uh, some toxin, too. Basically, we're, we're learning that plants have a great many more senses than we do. And they have all of our five. They can see. Obviously, they're responsive to light, but they're responsive in different ways to different frequencies of light. They can respond to touch. They feel things and they, you know, vines wrap around poles because they feel them. They have hearing, as has been recently discovered. You know, in one experiment I described, Heidi Appel, who's a chemical ecologist at the University of Missouri, played a recording of a plant being chomped on by caterpillars for another plant that hadn't been chomped on by caterpillars. And that plant reacted in the appropriate way, which is to prepare to produce the kinds of defense chemicals that they would produce. So the sound of caterpillar chomping gets a rise out of other plants. And in another experiment that was done in Italy, you know, we all know how tree roots will come and destroy your pipes and your septic system under your house. And we've always assumed it was because they sense the water condensation on the outside of the pipe. But even a completely dry pipe Roots will seek it out, suggesting that they're hearing the, the sound of water moving in it. Well, I, I have to say that that strikes me as very difficult to believe. I mean, <laughs> that, that they might be sensitive to sound. Sound just vibrations in the air. So the plants have things that move in the air. Their leaves are vibrating, whatever. And I can imagine they'd be... And they do have channels. They have liquid channels in their stems that do respond to vibrations, which, of course, is all that sound is. Yeah, okay. Well, that I'll buy that, as Howard Hughes would say. But, <laughs> but, but what I find difficult to buy is that they can interpret those sounds and know, hey, those are caterpillars somewhere else, and I don't like caterpillars after a couple hundred million years of evolution. I know caterpillars are bad for my leaves, and I'm going to produce some toxins. I mean, that, that sounds like real complex thought almost to me. 
Well, it doesn't require thought, and no one's saying that the plants have brains. But we know that they're intricately networked, and we know that they pass signals back and forth. We have known since the 80s that plants signal one another, and some scientists would say that they're communicating. So that when a plant is injured by insects, it puts out certain volatile chemicals that are picked up as warning signals that are picked up sometimes by other leaves on the same plant or on other plants. And there are several cases where plants release volatile signals when they're attacked that summon other insects, usually a parasitic wasp, to come and attack the bug that attacked the plant. So it's kind of a second-party defense strategy. Now, it sounds very purposeful, and there's a real danger of teleology here, that you're imputing purpose to things that are really chance evolutionary developments. It could just be that the plant is putting out a distress call to its own leaves that is getting picked up on by that insect, and the insect is kind of eavesdropping and acting on it. So we don't know the motives, but we know the effects, and we've proven these very complicated signaling systems. We also know that plants, when they signal distress, plants that are related to them respond to those signals a lot more, suggesting that in some sense they're favoring their kin. And there's several studies that suggest some kin recognition in plants, and I found that particularly mind-blowing. If you put two closely related plants in the same pot, they won't compete for root space the way unrelated plants would, you know, because there's a competition for the nutrients in the soil. If they're related, they'll share, and they'll kind of restrain that competitive urge. It, it sounds like a whole new uh, meaning to the word family tree, <laughs> I mean, that they really do this. You, you mentioned the fact that they can send these signals around, or, or maybe they're not sending the signals around, but they're certainly... They're emitting them. They're releasing chemicals. Yeah, so. and you talk about a study done at the University of British Columbia that uh, involved plants having a kind of a network. Uh, I think they called it the wood wide web or something in a yes. forest. Can you describe that for me? Yeah, that was really remarkable. Uh, I was totally unfamiliar with this research, but I was up in British Columbia attending a, the um, Plant Intelligence Conference, and I heard about a, a forest ecologist named Suzanne Samard who had done remarkable work with a group of colleagues showing how the, the fir trees in a forest in British Columbia were all linked together in a communications network, but also a goods trading network. And how it worked was this. There are mycelium, which are basically the hyphae of fungus, various kinds, that we do know are in this synergistic relationship with roots. The hyphae provide certain nutrients to the plant in exchange for which plants give sugars to feed the fungus. And this relationship we've known for a while. But what she found is that all these hyphae or mycelium are connecting trees in a forest in a very elaborate network, and that the plants are using that network to send signals of distress or warning to one another, also to feed uh, young trees that are not getting enough sunlight. And when they do that, and they basically use this network to send sugars around, when they do that, they seem to favor their own kin, their own offspring. But there is another amazing case of interspecies cooperation in this network in that she found that in forests where you have two species and you have, say, fir trees and a deciduous species like paperbark birch, the trees will swap nutrients, the two species, because there are certain times of the year where the evergreen fir has a surplus of sugar and there are times when the deciduous tree needs more sugar. So the, the fir tree will give more sugar away 
and then the debt will be repaid at another point in the season. So there's an economy operating between these trees. That's a very hard one to square with any kind of Darwinian ideas. It actually sounds like tribal behavior. I, I don't know. It's more than that because they're willing to cooperate with what are normally enemies if their enemies can sometimes be their friends. I mean, it's very sophisticated. But they found, too, though, that in forests where these networks were active, it contributed to more total photosynthesis because the surpluses of sugar got used and the diversity of the forest contributed to more resilience when there were storms and other kinds of problems. And so, you know, we don't know that ecological communities are an object of selection. I mean, that's not generally what is believed right now, but this is evidence for perhaps some such phenomenon. There's a new field studying all this sort of behavior called plant neurobiology. Now, the research is certainly fascinating. We've been hearing about it. But neurobiology, that sounds like an unfortunate name. Well, it's, a, it's an aggressive name or a tendentious name, and it certainly earned them a world of grief because there are no neurons, uh, and they don't claim that there are any neurons. But I think they're using the word neurobiology somewhat metaphorically. There are neuronal-like behaviors and, and brain-like functions, but they're performed in a different way. And in fact, using that phrase got them a lot of attention, but it also got them lots of trouble. And in, in fact, the uh, National Science Foundation um, refused to give any money to a program with that kind of name or, or fund uh, their meetings or anything like that. So the Americans in the group kind of quickly backed off and said, let's change it to the Society for Plant Signaling and Behavior, which is what it is. Uh, frankly, I think the word behavior attached to plants is pretty amazing in itself. Uh, but several of the researchers, including the founders, Stefano Mancuso and Frontisek Beluska, they've stuck to their guns, and they still call their labs laboratories of plant neurobiology, in the full understanding that there are not neurons, there are not synapses. Uh, there are things that look like them, but part of their point, too, is what's the big deal with neurons? I mean, should we fetishize these cells? These are just excitable cells. This is one way of processing information. There are others as well. And that, in a way, to me, is what's really striking about all this work, is how it makes you look back at how we achieve some of these same goals, which is to say taking in information from our environment, processing it, and then reacting in an adaptive way. It shines a very interesting light back on neurons and on brains. All right. They don't have brains. Then again, computers don't have brains, really. And, and I remember when Kasparov was beaten by IBM's Deep Blue at chess. And his reaction was to say it was as if it was some sort of alien intelligence. <laughs> well, it wasn't intelligence. I mean, it was just a bunch of circuitry that could play a game. And so I kind of wonder about these plants. I mean, whether they're really as smart as they seem, because... Plants have to make do with whatever is within reach. They can't move to greener pastures. So are they really intelligent? Are they just like a robot vacuum cleaner? Because my Roomba, you know, it can sense the carpet, I suppose, and the furniture, maybe even the cat, and it adjusts its behavior to get the place cleaned up. But I would never talk about neuro vacuum cleaners or anything like that. Well, look, we, you know, we did call what Big Blue did artificial intelligence, and there is a field of that. And is that intelligence? I mean, can computers be intelligent? Many people are willing to grant intelligence to computers more than are willing to grant intelligence to plants or to bacteria. And, um, you know, some will say, well, we're modifying it with the word artificial. So it's a different kind of intelligence than people have. And, well, these people would say they're modifying the word with the word plant. 
It's plant-specific intelligence, and they speak of plant-specific pain. But these are, you know, kind of semantic issues that shade into philosophical issues because go to Wikipedia and look up the word intelligence. You'll be kind of surprised what you find. There's no consensus definition. In fact, Wikipedia despairs of coming up with a definition, so instead presents a little boxed chart with about nine different definitions. And some of them depend on brains. You know, they talk about abstract reasoning and judgment and things like that. But others merely speak in terms of problem-solving ability. And I think that's the kind of definition they're leaning toward. You know, when you're defining something like intelligence, it's not an absolute. It's not given in, in the world, in nature. It's a human category that we've invented. And we happen to have invented it in a very anthropocentric way so that it excludes other species. But it's possible to define it in a more inclusive way. And that's essentially what they've done. And the same is true, I think, for memory and learning. So in the end, you know, you find yourself gradually departing from science and realizing you're in the realm of philosophy. And that's a very contentious realm, uh, even among scientists. Yeah, it sounds like, uh, you know, trying to define life. That's also, it turns out to be very difficult. Here at the SETI Institute, where this show is produced, as you know, we have a, an operational definition of what intelligence means when applied to extraterrestrials. Because you're looking at it. So what is your definition? If you can build a radio transmitter, you're intelligent. <laughs> That's it. It's very simple. <laughs> I mean, maybe not to build the transmitter, but the definition is simple. Uh, and it's obviously very... And it serves your purposes, yes. like most words that we or definitions we make. And the purposes in this case are a little different. I mean, some of the purposes of definitions are to preserve the specialness of humans. And many people are intent on doing that, whereas other people are intent on breaking down those barriers and showing that there's more continuity between species and that intelligence is essentially a property of life and that you will find it in bacteria as well, who, you know, by the standards of the plant neurobiologists, exhibit intelligent behavior too. Michael Pollan, thank you so very much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Seth. That was fun. Michael Pollan is a journalist. He's the author of Cooked and Omnivore's Dilemma. His New Yorker article, The Intelligent Plant, appeared in the December 23, 2013 issue. Intelligence in mammals, in greenery, and now in silicon. What it means to build an intelligent machine. It's you think you're so smart on Big Picture Science. So now, one of the most intelligent species on the planet, depending on how you measure intelligence, is designing artificial intelligence. And depending on how the experiment goes, you might say that we're building our own successors. But what does IQ mean for AI? Michael Pollan mentioned that machine intelligence is just another kind of intelligence. We qualify it by saying it's artificial intelligence, just as the proponents of plant intelligence qualify the smarts of vegetation. But the thing about machine intelligence is it's still changing. It's still evolving. Your fern may never outthink you, but your laptop may. The first computers, they had a few hundred circuits. Today, a typical microprocessor has a billion transistors. The capability of the machines is increasing exponentially, and that suggests that someday they may greatly exceed our own abilities. But back to the question, what does intelligence mean in a machine? If we can't agree on a definition of intelligence, 
are we building the right kind of intelligent machine? Imagine, for example, if artificial intelligence were modeled on the intelligence of plants. It all depends on what we want a smart machine to do. Mimic human intelligence? Pass a test that shows it can carry on a conversation with us? A Turing test? Or have abilities that are altogether novel? So I'm Luke Malhauser, Executive Director at the Machine Intelligence Research Institute in Berkeley. Luke, do we have a working definition of intelligence? Well, there are many working definitions for intelligence that have been proposed in specific fields, but none of them really match our intuitive sense of what it is to be an intelligent thing. And so some of the definitions I deal with in the field of artificial intelligence are very abstract and mathematical, and they're trying to ask the question, what does it mean to be intelligent no matter what species of creature you are, maybe even an artificial species, but it doesn't really map on all that well into our intuitive concept of intelligence. So there's no one working definition of intelligence, one size fits all. Well, there were actually a couple of researchers in Australia who surveyed the definitions of intelligence that had been given in 70 or 80 publications by scientists. And they seemed to converge on the idea of, you know, a thing is intelligent if it can achieve a wide range of goals in a wide range of environments. So you can use that as a working definition, but even that is not very specific. So given that definition there, then what we heard about plants, it would seem that the word intelligent is not inappropriate to use for plants because they're highly adaptive, as we've heard, in many different situations. So would you be uncomfortable using the word intelligent with plants? Well, it would fit a little bit, but not as well as the word intelligence fits with humans. So the plants only achieve goals in the soil and right above the soil, for example. Or they only achieve a very narrow range of goals that have to do with getting sunlight and getting nutrients. Whereas humans can have goals about traveling to the moon, and they can successfully go to the moon, very different from our ancestral environment. And so humans have a much broader range of goals that we can achieve if we put our minds to it. And so in that sense, humans are a lot more intelligent than plants and a lot more intelligent than chimpanzees or dolphins. So say more about that definition. Okay, you're using this example of humans can plan to go to the moon. So what's remarkable about that? Is it the technical achievement? Is it the abstract thinking? Is it conceiving of a goal in the future and obtaining it? Well, with the very abstract definition of intelligence just being about achieving a wide range of goals in a wide range of environments, there isn't anything specific in there about how you achieve those goals. So maybe this you know, system that is intelligent, whether it's a program or a human or a chimpanzee, maybe you know, they're not very creative. Maybe they just have a particular way of thinking about things in a very rigorous way that allows them to achieve their goals. And so this is re very relevant to artificial intelligence, where we can choose to try to make a machine that mimics the way that humans accomplish goals, or we can solve the problem of intelligent goal-directed behavior in a very different way. For example, remember that when we solved the problem of heavier-than-air flight, we didn't build planes that flap their wings. We found a different way to do it by understanding the principles of aerodynamics. And if we understand the principles of intelligence, we might solve that problem for machines in a very different way than humans solved it. Okay, then Luke, what does intelligence mean in a machine? Well, here again, we don't have very precise measures. I think we should 
stick with the you know ability to achieve a wide range of goals in a wide range of environments. And by that definition, most machines are extremely dumb to this day, but they're getting smarter. So right now, machines are very good at the very specific tasks, like playing chess or playing Jeopardy or detecting underwater mines or noticing road signs. But you can't give them a job that a human would do and just expect it to figure it out on its own and learn this new skill and apply it in the world. If we take the example of something like a welding robot, that can certainly outperform a human in the task of welding, but you wouldn't consider that machine intelligent. Well, I think it's useful to distinguish narrow intelligence and wide or broad or general intelligence. So specific machines have very extremely high narrow intelligence in extremely narrow subjects. For example, machines are much, much better at arithmetic than humans are. They can do millions of arithmetic calculations in a second. But they don't have a kind of general intelligence. You couldn't tell IBM's Watson, which beat Ken Jennings and other participants at Jeopardy, you couldn't tell Watson, uh, figure out how to go to the moon, Watson. Watson would have no idea how to do that. But humans can figure out how to do that. And that's because we have a very general form of intelligence. And machines and plants, and to some extent, dolphins and chimpanzees have much narrower forms of intelligence. Now, you work at the Machine Intelligence Research Institute that assumes that machine intelligence is going to be in our future for a long time. What is the purpose of the Institute? Well, the purpose of our Institute is to focus on the long-term picture of artificial intelligence. And specifically, we're concerned with the problem of how to make sure that intelligent machines do good things rather than bad things as they become more autonomous and more intelligent. Well, let's say more about that, because it suggests that things could go pear-shaped, meaning we could develop these machines that were very intelligent, but somehow we lose control of them. Can you give me the, the undesirable scenario? What are you trying to prevent? Well, the key thing to keep in mind is that I'm not worried about a robot rebellion in the sense that you will see in the movies. So in the movies, the robots are angry that they're humans' slaves and stuff like that. And while that's possible, that's probably not how robots will turn out. They probably won't have something so similar to human emotions. The real problem is just that for any goal that you give an autonomous machine, it's going to find ways to solve that problem that aren't what we intended. It's the classic problem of the genie, is that you get what you wished for rather than what you wanted. Well, give me an example of something, again, where machine intelligence could go wrong, or something maybe you've seen recently where you think we're, that example of machine intelligence was veering in the wrong direction. Well, I think that the systems that we have today are very limited. So I'm not actually all that worried about the behavior of present systems. But you can see the kind of thing that I'm worried about by looking at the automated trading programs that trade stocks on Wall Street. Uh, so some unfinished trading code had been put out into the, the public marketplace by Knight Capital, which at the time I think was the largest trader of U.S. equities. And the problem was that the algorithms made their trading choices so quickly that before anybody could notice what was happening, Knight Capital had basically bankrupted itself by making a bunch of bad trades. Th this illustrates the problem that if you've got machines making their own decisions based on the code that you gave them, if you make any mistakes in that code, they might cause a really big problem so quickly that you don't even have time to react. Now, machines making their own decisions in this example, that's an example of intelligent machines, but it's not an example of AI per se. What, what has emerged when when you have a machine that is actually artificially intelligent? 
Well, I think the automated trading programs on Wall Street would be called artificial intelligence by the mainstream community. What AI means today is, is these very limited intelligent systems that we have. The term AI is also used to describe future systems that are have this more general intelligence like humans do. So once you've got an artificial intelligence doing original science experiments and developing new technologies on its own, then you've got what you might call strong AI or artificial general intelligence or AGI for, for short. And that's a very different scenario that we are much less prepared for in terms of controlling the behavior of strong AI. Luke, if you could have the intelligent machine of your dreams right here on your on your desk, um, if we could just snap our fingers like that, what would it look like? What would it do for you? Well, I think that it would look like a large cluster of servers in a giant cooled warehouse. And what it would do for us is what's sometimes known as coherent extrapolated volition, which means not the thing that I desire right now in my current state of ignorance and bias, but instead what I would want if I were smarter and less prejudiced and more the person I wish I was and so on. I think there's a danger to giving machines whatever our current values are. You know, you can imagine what if the Greeks invented artificial intelligence and put into those machines their most advanced progressive values of the time. From our perspective, that would have been terrible. And I think it would be similarly terrible to give powerful machines of the future the exact values we happen to have now. So you would want them to have wisdom. That's right. Not just intelligence. We must also give them wisdom. Luke, thank you so much for speaking with us. My pleasure. Thank you. Luke Mauhauser is executive director of the Machine Intelligence Research Institute. So when it comes to machine intelligence, there is a legitimate question about what model we should use to develop that thinking machine. But, you know, what scares me, and it does scare me, is that once you've built that, you have that build the next generation. And, and you know, three, five, ten, a hundred generations down the line, the machines may be designing something that has an intelligence that we have no idea about whatsoever. Maybe in the way that we can't fathom plant intelligence, machines one day will look at us and have no idea whether or not we're intelligent because our abilities are opaque to them. Yeah, we'll be like some sort of slime mold, clever behavior in some sense, but not what you would call intelligent. You know, I don't know if we can say that anymore. I have more respect now for a slime mold. It may be more intelligent than you realize. <laughs> I'm not going to comment, but I hope I haven't offended the slime molds who might be listening. So we've gone from dolphins and animals to plants to machines, um, really animal, vegetable, and, and mineral, I guess, yes. and and applied the idea of intelligence to all three groups. And if anything, our definition of intelligence is murkier than when this conversation began. It is remarkable because you know that if we were having this discussion 100, 200 years ago, there would be absolutely no question that the only intelligence was homo sapiens intelligence. We were suffering from tunnel vision, and uh, that vision seems to be getting broader all the time. But one thing we do know is that there is no question that our production team, at least, has smarts, thanks to Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance. And also thanks to Google and Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to You Think You're So Smart. 
There's more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, you might find and download our Big Picture Science app. It's on iTunes, Android, and Windows 8. And if you're a podcast listener, but you prefer over-the-air radio because you know you have to be smart to build a radio, well, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like this show. 